Well, welcome to our last week looking at the book of Job. We have spent six weeks, including today, journeying through this Old Testament book, one that perhaps some of you never had even read before we jumped into it, or maybe you had read it before and wondered, what do I do with this story of this man who suffers so much? Where is God in the midst of this, and how do we take this and apply it to our lives? And so we've tackled it together, we've journeyed through it, and today we are at the end of Job. We're going to wrap it up today. Before we wrap it up, let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you so much for being with us throughout these last six weeks as we've studied your word in the book of Job. Lord, we thank you for the truths that we have learned. We thank you for your presence in the midst of this story. And Lord, as we continue in it today, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see you in the text. And Lord, that we would be changed by your word. May nothing that I say get in the way of what you wish to declare today but may you be glorified through your word and through our time in it. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Well, this series that we've been in has been all about exploring the life of Job, exploring his suffering that he endures and talking about how it is that we handle suffering ourselves. What does it look like as followers of Christ to have a solid theology of suffering? And really, this stemmed from looking at people around me in my life and people who I've known and and witnessed throughout the church and being a part of the church who have had to endure suffering. And some people have endured it well. They've had a healthy theology of suffering, and some people have not. And largely, the Western church has stopped talking about suffering and how it is that we handle suffering well or what a theology of suffering is. Where is God in the midst of suffering? We don't really like to deal with it because it makes us really uncomfortable and we have to wrestle with these questions that we've wrestled with of where is God when I'm going through suffering. And yet, because it's so important, because it's such a foundational piece of our experience in this life, it's crucial that we take the time to journey through these sections of Scripture that deal with suffering and to talk about how we can build a theology that still is solid in Christ Jesus even in the midst of our trials. You see, we all go through suffering at one time or another. We all experience it in different ways and shapes and forms. Sometimes it's small ways of suffering. Like a few weeks ago, my washer broke at home. Now we have four kids. There's six of us. So a broken washer, while it may not seem like a huge thing, was some suffering. Now Thankfully, my in-laws live two houses down, so for three weeks, we walked our laundry through two houses down, and my in-laws were gracious to let us come and do laundry. But there was some small suffering in that. Now, many people suffer in greater ways, admittedly. People suffer the loss of jobs, the loss of loved ones, major surgeries that they experience, debilitating illnesses that people go through, loved ones who you lose. I know many people who are suffering right now, people who I've sat with in the last week who are in the midst of great suffering. So what do we do with all that? How do we walk that path still being reliant upon a good God? How do we experience God's goodness even in the midst of our trials? And so today we're going to look at how the book of Job ends as we explore one last time Job's suffering and where God is in the midst of it. So if you would turn with me to the very end of Job, we're going to be in Job chapter 42 today. 
and we're not going to be jumping around through multiple chapters. This is the last one in Job. And really, there's three sections here that chapter 42 breaks up into. And the first section is Job's confession. The second is God's, uh, God's rebuke of Job's friends. And the third is Job's restoration. So we're going to go through each of those and see what occurs and what it is that we can learn about Job and God. So starting in 42, verse 1 through 6, it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." So we've had these chapters of God laying out who he is as the creator, as the sustainer of the world, as God who is sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing compared to who Job is. And so God's let Job know who it is that he questioned, who it is that he brought these complaints against. And Job earlier had said, I'm not going to talk anymore. My mouth is closed. And he put his hand over his mouth. And yet here in verse 1, we see Job once again speak. But this time he has something important to say. It's not a complaint against the Lord. It's not a wondering where God was or why he had to suffer so much. But Job needs to confess. And he knows that that warrants his speaking. In verse 2, he recognizes his place before God as God has unfolded the majesty of who he is. Job has realized his insignificance. He says, you can do all things. He recognizes God's sovereignty, and he says, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. If God intends something to happen, there's nothing that can get in the way of that. It doesn't matter what Job or his friends do or try to do. If God has a plan, no one can stop a plan of the Lord. Now, it can be easy to breeze by these points, and yet these things are foundational to the character of God. His sovereignty, his powerfulness, the fact that God's purposes can't be thwarted, these are foundational aspects of who God is, of his character, and who it is whom we serve as the Lord God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 through 17 speaks to this. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. You see, God is the only one who has that claim. God is the only one who is sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing over all things, the one who created all things and sustains all things. And regarding his plans, Proverbs 33, 10 through 11 tells us, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people, but the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. You see, God is all-powerful. God is mighty. His plans are sustained, and nothing can get in the way of the plans of the Lord. And Job recognizes this finally and admits to the fact that he does not have the knowledge that he had portrayed earlier. When he questioned who God was or where God was or why he was going through what he was going through, Job lacked the knowledge that he now sees he didn't have. 
He confesses that he spoke of things that were too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And this aspect of Job's confession is important for us. You see, confession is important in our relationship with God. In fact, it's foundational to our relationship with God as followers of His. Because when we confess, there is an aspect of showing humility, of reminding ourselves that God is God and that we are not. It places ourselves in submission to Him and to His grace alone. And so that's the point that Job finds himself in. In confessing his ignorance, he references the questions that he had leveled at God, requesting an audience to question the Lord about his suffering. And he had wanted to have that audience with the Lord, to raise these questions, and yet now he realizes that while he had heard about God, while he had some knowledge of God, he had not seen God in the way that he has now. And now that he has seen the Lord Now that he has heard of all that the Lord has done and who the Lord is, Job is brought low and realizes the error of his ways. Which leads to the posture that we see him take in verse 6. In verse 6, it tells us that Job says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, Job despises his previous ways. He recognizes the error of the words that he spoke throughout this book as he complained, as he wondered where God was, and now he repents in dust and ashes. This term, repent, it means to turn from a planned course of action, to take up a new course. It implies the strongest resolve to change directions. It's not necessarily an attitude of remorse used here, but an affirmative action based upon the conviction that Job feels, that he is brought so low that he is going to change his direction, he's going to change his ways and places himself beneath the Lord. The Lord has heard Job's confession and now moves on to deal with Job's friends. And in doing so, we see that the Lord has heard Job's confession because of how God treats Job. And we also are provided with a clear picture of where the Lord stood regarding the counsel that his friends provided him. You see, throughout the book, it's been questionable at times as to if what they've said is true. Are they in the right? You may wonder when they question Job's integrity or Job's righteousness. Maybe they're onto something that Job needs to confess and repent because he has some grievous sin that's gotten in the way of his relationship with God. And yet, we've tried to hold on with Job that Job is right when he claims that he is righteous. That he's right when he claims that there wasn't a sin that caused all the suffering that he's going through. And so now the Lord finally speaks to the friends. Picking up in chapter 42, verse 7. It says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourself. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayers not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite And Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So the Lord moves in our text to rebuke of Job's friends and says to them that his anger burns against them. 
It's reminiscent of previously in scriptures where we've seen the Lord's anger burning against those who have gone against God. It reminds me of when Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed and the Lord's anger burns against them for their evil. And why is the Lord angry here? Why is his anger burning against these friends? Because they've spoken words of the Lord that were not right. They've spoken falsehoods about God's character and who he is. I love how a commentary uh, by Hartley puts it. He states, Job has been genuinely groping for the truth, but the friends have spoken falsely in their attempt to defend God. More than failing to comfort Job, they have tempted him to take the wrong course out of his affliction. Since their counsel would lead Job away from the true worship of Yahweh, they are accused of folly, the denial of God's goodness, and redemptive activity in the affairs of mankind. See, Job's friends, they led him astray, or at least they sought to, as they talked about who God was and God's character, about why God should be angry with Job, and about how Job needed to repent. And so the Lord turns to them now and rebukes them for their role and for their words that they spoke as they sought to counsel Job. And the result of these actions is that the Lord is requiring a sacrifice to be made, a sacrifice to be made in order to purify them, to set them right before the Lord. And not just any sacrifice, but look at the sacrifice they must make in verse 8. It says, Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourself. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayers not to deal with you according to your folly. This sacrifice is a huge sacrifice. This is the same size sacrifice that Balaam used in Numbers 23 when he goes to try to get God to curse Israel. And the price of this sacrifice was costly. In fact, one commentator I was reading said that only nobility would have been able to afford such a rich offering. And yet this is what the Lord requires of Job's friends for their sin. In addition to the sacrifice that we see laid out in verse 8, the Lord tells them to take it to Job, to take it to their friend who they've ridiculed, who they've critiqued, who they've said must be filled with sin, that he will be the one who will pray to the God on their behalf. There is a humbling of his friends in this moment to take their sacrifice to Job to ask him to intercede on their behalf before God, as Job had cried out for someone to intercede on his behalf before God. And yet now Job will play that role for his friends. And we saw Job play this role earlier for his children as he would go to the Lord and make sacrifices for his kids in chapter 2 and intercede on their behalf before God. And now Job is in that role once again. Throughout verses 7 and 8 here, we see the Lord refer to Job four times as my servant. And this title suggests a close relationship with God. It's used throughout the Old Testament as a title of honor for one who serves God and shows us this element of Job really being restored in terms of his relationship with the Lord. That the Lord calls Job my servant, that he uses Job in this way on his friend's behalf to bring their sacrifice before him. And Job's friends, thankfully, are obedient. They could have decided to ignore God's command. They could have decided to uh, be too prideful to humble themselves in this way. But thankfully, they are obedient to the Lord's command. And Job is obedient to offer up this prayer and sacrifice on their behalf. 
This is a moment of reconciliation, I believe, between Job and his friends, as Job could have been just as frustrated with his friends and having to offer a sacrifice on their behalf as they could have been having to humble themselves and ask Job to do that. And yet they all obey what the Lord asked them to do in this moment, and the result is that God accepts their offering. Well, now that Job and his friends have both repented and been accepted by the Lord, we move forward to the conclusion of the Lord's dealings with Job. Let's take a look at how the Lord restores Job following his suffering. Look with me at chapter 42, verse 10 through 17. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginnings. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camel, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of his first daughter, Jemimai, and the name of his second, Kaziah, and the name of his third, Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. And that's the end of the story of Job. That's the conclusion that we have. In verse 10, the Lord restores Job. The God that we serve is in the business of restoration. We see it throughout Scripture that God redeems and restores the broken. He does it time and time again. He does it here with Job. But note, it doesn't come until Job and his friends have confessed. Till Job has confessed his lowly position and has recognized who he is in light of who God is and is faithful to offer a sacrifice on behalf of his friends. God restores giving Job twice as much as he had before. But before we get into the specifics of what God gives Job, we see this relational aspect that God also restores and brings into Job's life. In verse 11, we see that Job's family came to eat, to fellowship with him, and to bring sympathy and comfort. And this begs the question, well, where was Job's family throughout all of this? He had three friends show up to comfort him. He had a wife who told him to just turn and curse God and die. But we didn't see any other family. Where was his family in the midst of this? But in Job chapter 19, verse 13 through 14, Job says, He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me, and my close friends have forgotten me. You see, due to what Job went through, due to his afflictions, probably the sores all over his body, and all the suffering that he was enduring, and probably a similar belief that this was a consequence of his sin, Job was an outcast. Because of his situation, his family even had treated him as an outcast. And so what we see here as the Lord restores is a restoration of those relationships as well. That's not only Job's possessions that will be redeemed and restored, but it's his familial relationships as well. 
And these relationships, as they're, as they're reunited, they fill a void that Job had. You see, Job had wanted that comfort and that sympathy, and yet his three friends were unable to provide it. As he suffered and endured the trials he went through, his friends were unable to give that sympathy that he so desired. And yet here in these relationships being restored, we see them fill that void as they bring comfort and sympathy to Job. Even in the midst of him seeing the Lord restore what was taken from him, he still needs to be comforted. He still needs those relationships to come alongside him. And as the Lord uses them in this manner, he also uses them to increase Job's wealth as they bring money and gold. I love how the Lord uses Job's family to restore him in multiple ways. And then we get into where we see the monetary ways that the Lord blesses Job by giving him even more than he had in his early days. And we see this list of all this livestock that Job is given. A tremendous amount that restores Job to a position as one who has great wealth and has great possessions that the Lord has given him. But the Lord is not done with just bringing his family back into the picture and just bringing livestock to Job. Now he's going to give him children again, which also shows us a restoration between Job and his wife if there was a void there when his wife was encouraging him to curse God and to just die I imagine that was hard to go through together. And yet here we see that they must have at some level reconciled because they have 10 kids together that the Lord blesses them with that will bring Job new joy in his future years. Now they don't replace the children that he lost. The pain of the loss of those children will still be with Job, but these 10 children will bring him a new joy as he moves forward. And in verse 16 and 17, as our book concludes, we see that, that while at one point Job wished for death or wished to never have even be, been born, that now he is given the gift of long life, which is something that was considered to be given to those who the Lord looked favorably upon. Job is blessed by the Lord to see his children and his grandchildren for four generations. Job lived 140 years, it tells us, which is a perfect or complete number of years. If you look at that idea of 70 times 2 and double the normal amount of years that we see lived. Psalm 90 verse 10 tells us that the years of our life are 70, sometimes 80, but the Lord gives him double here for sure. And Job dies an old man full of life. But notice here what we don't see. Job does not live happily ever after or forever. In verse 17, the beginning of it, it tells us, and Job died. And this is important for us. In one of the church's ancient hymns, Ephraim the Syrian sings of Job conquering Satan, but not death, and of Christ conquering death where Job could not. Ephraim also writes of Job's suffering being only on his own behalf, and yet Christ's suffering being on behalf of all his people. You see, where Job could not, Christ could. While Job was restored of all that he had lost, while he was redeemed, while he had a long life and was blessed immensely, Job still died. Job still had an end to his life. And Christopher Ashe, in his commentary on Job, in these last verses, writes this. He says, The end comes at the end. The normal Christian life is warfare and waiting and being loved and humbled by God and being justified by God. 
all in the here and the now, but it is the expectation of blessing at the end. Often we do not get blessed now, or often we do get blessed now. God graciously pours out all manner of blessings here and now, but the blessings we get now are just the tiny foretaste of the blessing to be poured out at the end. A tiny foretaste of the blessing to come. You see, this book, in all its complexities, should point us forward to the one in whom our hope resides. It provides us with a tiny glimpse of God's restorative goodness, His unceasing presence, and His love for those who follow Him. So while Job's story ends, the story that God is writing, the blessings that God wishes to give to those who follow Him have no end. And this gives us just a taste of that moving forward. Throughout the book of Job, we have learned a lot about Job and his friends, but the most important lessons we have learned have actually been about God and his character. As we apply this text to our lives today, I want to suggest four things that we can learn from the book of Job about who God is, and then encourage us to put it into practice moving forward. So four aspects of God's character that we see throughout Job that are important for us as we move forward this week into Palm Sunday next and then Easter the next Sunday. These four truths should become a foundation for who we are as followers of Christ. And the first is that God is sovereign. He is in control of everything, even when we don't understand it. Even when Job was suffering, God was still in control. He still placed limits upon what Job would have to endure. He still protected Job's life. He was still in control. Bob Deffenbach, in his book, A Solace of Suffering, suggests that when Paul talks about God's sovereignty in Romans, he isn't saying that every aspect that you have to endure is good. And this is what he says. He says, Paul does not say that each event is good or even that each incident will produce that which is good. He informs us that all the events working together produce what is good. To illustrate, the ingredients which go into a cake are not very tasty when eaten individually. Flour, sugar, shortening, eggs, salt, baking powder, and spices are not something that we want to eat on their own one at a time. But mix all of these together in just the right proportions and then bake the combined mixture and you have a delicious treat. Each event in our life is like one ingredient in a cake. It may not seem good by itself, but when mixed by God with other correct events, it will surely produce what is good. You see, God has a purpose, and God's purposes we are not always aware of. We can't always know why we go through what we go through, why we have to endure what we have to endure, but we can know that God is in control. The second thing that we can know is that God is merciful. He is always willing to forgive us if we come before him confessing our sins and placing ourselves under his mercy. When Job repents, God shows him mercy. When Job offers a sacrifice on behalf of his friends and their sin, God shows them mercy. In Isaiah 30, 18, it tells us, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show you mercy. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. And so throughout the book of Job, we have seen God's mercy. We've seen it in very real ways in Job's life and even in the life of his friends. And so we can know as we move forward that our God is merciful. The third thing about God's character is that he is faithful. 
Even though Job felt abandoned at times and questioned whether God was indeed faithful, we know that God never left Job or forsook him. That God was aware of everything that was going on in Job's life and God never left him. He didn't always feel near, but he was always near to Job. And think about the Israelites coming out from Egypt and how God is faithful to provide manna for them from heaven. How they have no source of food, no way to sustain their lives, and there are so many of them. And yet God has led them out. God has told them, I will provide for you. And God is faithful to rain down from heaven just what they need until the moment when they no longer need it as they move into Canaan. God keeps his word and promises, which is exactly what it means for him to be faithful. And the last aspect of God's character that I want to point out is that God is good, even in the midst of suffering, even in hardship, even in pain that we have to endure. God is good, and he always has our best interest in mind. Exodus 34, 6 says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. God's goodness is reflected throughout Scripture in his upholding righteousness, justice, and ultimately in his defeat of evil. And we just sung about this ultimate picture of his goodness in the song, It Was Finished Upon That Cross. One of the lines in that song said, Free from every plan of darkness, free to live and free to love. Death is dead and Christ is risen. It was finished upon that cross. I can't think of a better picture of God's goodness than Jesus coming down to earth to die upon the cross so that we may experience life. And knowing these four attributes of God can lead us to a confidence in who he is no matter what we suffer or no matter what trials come our way, that we can know that God is God. And that leads me to my last application for our series on Job, which is to encourage each one of us to trust God, to place our trust in him. On Friday night, my family and I were sitting around the table having our Sabbath dinner, and at the end of our dinner, when we do dessert each week, we always have some sort of Bible study that we do. And as we finished that, one of my children asked us, how can we know that the Bible is true? Like, we read this book, we, we read these stories, how can we know it to be true? It was such a great question, one that all of us have probably asked at some time or another. And so we spent some time discussing how we can place our faith in the Word of God and how we can know it to be true and just talked for a little bit about it. But I've been pondering that since Friday night, thinking about how we can know God to be true and His Word to be true. And I was thinking that we know it to be true because we've seen God. We've seen Him move in mighty ways. And if you look throughout Scripture, we see Noah trusted God and he built the ark and God provided. We saw Abraham trust God with his son Isaac, and God provided. Joseph trusted God when he was sold into slavery, and God provided for him. David trusted God when he was fleeing from Saul and hiding in caves, worried about his life, and yet God provided. And Peter trusted Jesus when he gets out of the boat and walks on the water, moving towards his Savior, and God provided. 
And the disciples trust Jesus when they take the 12 loaves of bread and the two fish and they go start spreading it out among a crowd and it multiplies to feed 5,000. See, God provided. There are so many stories throughout Scripture of God's faithfulness. He never abandons those who place their faith in Him. But I want to give you one more example from my own life that came to mind this week of how we can trust God as we see him move, as we see him provide. And it was a few years back before we came here when I had been let go from my previous pastoral job and we were waiting for the next place that the Lord would lead us to. And I was without work. And as our uh, severance package was running out and our money was starting to run out a little bit, we had multiple kids at home and a mortgage and we're praying about what to do and how we're going to be able to make ends meet. And in my mailbox, I remember distinctly, we had multiple cards show up, random cards, anonymous cards, with gift cards, significant gift cards to the grocery store and to Costco. And I remember just knowing that God was with us, knowing that God had provided those to sustain us in that season. And those are the moments that build our faith, that help us to trust God, to know that He is always with us to know that he is real, that even when you are suffering, that even when you are hurting or sick, that God is with you, that you can place your trust in him. And I'm sure that everyone in this room has stories like that, times when they've trusted God and seen his provision. The challenge of suffering is that sometimes we get so blinded by the pain, by what we're going through, that we allow ourselves to forget that God is faithful that he has always been faithful, and that he will always be faithful. Friends, as we've embarked through this, on this journey through Job, trying to establish a theology of suffering for our lives, we know that we will suffer. We know that we will go through trials, but may we not let those sufferings and trials cause us to lose our faith. May we know that God is near us always. May we focus upon who God is rather than what it is that we are going through. May we know his care for each one of us during those times. Let me close with the words of Douglas Sean O'Donnell, as none seem more fitting as we wrap up this series. He says, what a book and what a savior. Job's journey and Jesus' life show us that God can and does triumph over evil ultimately, and thus we can trust him. We can trust him as we look at creation. We can trust him as we look at the history of salvation. We can trust him as we look at his written revelation. We can trust that he will glorify what is stronger than hate and evil and suffering and death, and that he will do so through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom all glory and honor and praise and adoration is forever due. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving us your son that bears witness to your care for each one of us as you showed us each grace. Lord, we are so unworthy and undeserving of how you treat us, of the care and the love that you show us, of the faithfulness that you have shown each one of us. And yet, God, you graciously give it to us each and every day. So, Lord, may we be reminded that you are our great sustainer. May we fix our eyes upon you in good times and in bad times. 
not wavering from our faith in who you are as a good God, but drawing nearer to you and allowing you to sustain us no matter what we're going through. And Lord, in the midst of it and after it, may we use it all to glorify your name as the one and true God of the universe. We praise you and we love you. And we thank you for this time and your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.